What do we talk about when we talk about coal? Climate change, black lung, West Virginia, fossil fuel emissions, jobs, and the loss of them. But for one coal miner's son, it makes him think of his dad's lunchbox. It's a metal tin lunch bucket, like 15 inches long and about four and a half inches wide, just right to stack sandwiches in in the bottom. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm Tina Antolini. Today, a story about a coal miner's lunchbox, and how, for one writer, it represents much more than just a vessel to carry food. Caleb Johnson grew up in a small community in northwest Alabama, where many people work in the mines, and he brings us this story. My dad woke up every day at five in the evening. He walked out back, smoked a cigarette, and drank a Dr. Pepper. A rotating cast of yard dogs vied for his attention while he listened to local sports talk radio. Only once this ritual was complete could he come into the kitchen and start another one, fixing his lunch. He tore loose a few paper towels and spread them on the counter. Then he set down his metal lunchbox and opened the lid. As far back as I can remember, it was covered in heavy-duty vinyl stickers and smudged by industrial grease and coal dust. In the refrigerator, there might be a container of vegetable soup his mama, my granny, had cooked the Saturday before. If not, he'd just as soon eat a few bologna sandwiches. Letting a slice turn black in a pan was as close to cooking as I ever saw him get. He wrapped these sandwiches in foil, then stacked them in the lunchbox like a deck of cards. He'd eat around 4 a.m. in a tunnel nearly 1,800 feet underground. Dad left our house in Arley, Alabama for his job at Jim Walter Resources No. 7 Mine in Brookwood while my mama's sister and I were still eating dinner. Six times a week he made this four-hour round-trip commute to work what's called the owl shift from 11 p.m. to 9 a.m. So we didn't see Dad much during the week. But there was always that little bit of time when he stood at the counter fixing his lunch. Sometimes we talked, sometimes I just watched. He worked with the same care and intent, and maybe just a little of the same superstition that I imagine he did down in the mine. This past spring, my dad retired. We'll get around to why later. But suddenly, he was without this evening ritual. He no longer had to prepare for a long night in the mine, but instead had to get ready for the rest of his life without it. My dad's never been introspective, but I thought talking about his lunchbox and the food he carried in it for so many years might get him to reflect and help me better understand the role coal has played in our lives. Okay, my name is Ronnie Johnson. I'm 63 years old. I worked at three different coal mines for a total of 35 years and two months. He didn't start out wanting to be a coal miner. In 1979, Dad was working as a dispatcher for a company in Double Springs that delivered mobile homes. In June of that year, many long-haul truckers went on strike to protest soaring diesel fuel prices. When the company hired strike breakers, things escalated. They uh, called in a bond threat to the office. They said they were going to blow the office up. You better get all of us out of there. Work was canceled. Dad went to softball practice later that afternoon. Well, I was playing softball for a team in Carbon Hill at the time, and... Carbon Hill's in Walker County, and that's predominantly coal country. Baseball and softball have long been part of coal communities. Several of Dad's teammates even worked in local mines. One of them started talking to him about it. 
So he said, why don't you get you a job in the coal mines? I said, why don't you get me a job in the coal mines? Working in a coal mine was one of the best paying jobs around for somebody who, like my dad, didn't have a college degree. So he turned in an application. Summer passed, the trucker strike ended, and softball season too. He went back to work as a dispatcher and didn't think much about the mines until one day in February 1980, his mama called the office. And so I got on the phone and, and mother said, what have, what have you done? And I said, you know, back then there's no telling what I had done. So I said, uh, I don't know, what, what have I done? And she said, there's a lady uh, named Miss Love called here from Maxine Mines and they want you to come down for an interview. A couple days later, he was offered a job. Coal has been a part of life in Alabama for almost 200 years. A group of veterans headed home from the Battle of New Orleans discovered coal in central Alabama around 1820. Dr. Jim Day is a historian at the University of Montevallo. He says these soldiers stumbled on coal by accident. A couple of boys were out uh, wandering the woods one late one afternoon, uh, built a fire, and went to sleep. Woke up and the uh, rocks were on fire. So that was uh, kind of the legendary start of, of coal. It took another 20 years before somebody opened a real working mine. These early operations tended to be small and individually owned, and the operators lacked the knowledge, money, and machinery to do much more than blast away exposed coal seams in riverbanks or dig out whatever was near the surface. Then, an English engineer named Joseph Squire showed up in central Alabama. Before long, open pit mining gave way to drift and slope mining, which followed coal seams deeper underground. Mule-drawn wagons, rail lines, and later electric pulleys were used to carry coal up to the surface. Squire wasn't the only immigrant coming to work in the Alabama mines either. Coal mining really brought a lot of European immigrants to this area. Italians, Hungarians, Romanians, poor whites, and blacks who'd left the agrarian black belt during Reconstruction also joined them underground. They all brought with them food traditions and carried their meals in cylindrical metal lunchboxes. In the bottom would go fresh water to drink, which also kept the food cool. Next would be a removable tray filled with the main course. Maybe a chunk of pork, some other meat, or a sandwich. On top would go a dessert. I've got a man in the Underground rock falls and explosions were common, so a well-packed lunch could mean the difference between life and death while miners waited to be rescued. The heyday of Alabama coal mining was the 1920s. During World War I, the Navy needed lots of cheap fuel to power its ships. Jim estimates anywhere between 50 to 100 mines operated at a given time across the state's four coal fields. Alabama coal heated houses, powered locomotives, and fed blast furnaces in Birmingham's booming steel industry. Tens of thousands of workers depended on coal mining, directly or indirectly, and in less than a century, coal had forever altered the state's economy, its landscape, and culture. My experience indicates that folks uh, who live in Alabama only need to go back one generation or two to find some connection to coal, and that, I think that story resonates with a lot of people Dad's coal story begins at the Maxine mine. 
Its ceiling was only 36 inches high, not much taller than most desks. The miners wore knee pads to protect themselves while crawling. Maxine only went about 300 feet below ground, not very deep compared to the shaft mines Dad would later work in. I even saw a copperhead in that mine. That's how shallow that mine was. So. A snake wasn't the only wildlife he saw either, and eating lunch could be tricky with the critters that lived underground. Dad remembers one particular encounter. He crawled into a ram car, a vehicle that hauls coal, on his lunch break. So I got my lunch bucket in there with me and opened it up and got me out a bologna and cheese sandwich and took my hard hat off because I was hot. And uh, I was eating my bologna and cheese sandwich and I kept, kept hearing a noise to the left of me. It sounded like a, a hog or something. in it. So I eased my right hand up there and got my hard hat and shined it down beside the shuttle car. And there was a huge gopher rat had his feet, front feet up on the side of the shuttle car trying to get to my bologna and cheese sandwich. And I, you know, like I panicked and started swatting at him and he ran off. But we didn't have mice at Maxine. We had gopher rats as big as a house cat. You know, they were huge. They would scare you to death when you run up on them. The rats survived on food scraps, but the miners actually depended on the rats too, on their ability to sense when a ceiling was about to collapse. You would see those rats like line up and just start running. And when you saw them start running, you knew you better start running too. And if you don't think you can get up and run in 36 inch coal, you're crazy because you can when that top starts coming in bad enough. Now you might have some scant places on your back by the time you get out of there, but you can uh, you could get up and run. Dad was laid off from Maxine after about a year. Then he was hired at Nebo Mine. When it shut down, he was laid off again. Then, in 1984, he was called to work at Jim Walter Resources Number 7 Mine, just east of Tuscaloosa. I was born two years later. The Number 7 Mine was much deeper than others he'd worked at. At nearly 1,800 feet, it's one of the deepest vertical shafts in North America. 59 miners at a time rode an elevator down to the bottom, where more rats waited in the darkness. Little rats, little mice, they would eat your lunch too if you didn't hang it up, you know. That's one reason I went to a metal lunch bucket. After the three-minute elevator ride, the miners walked maybe 100 yards to what they called the man bus, which carried them on a track to their sections. Starting out, it might not take you 15 minutes to get to where you worked at in 1984, but by the time I, I left working on the section in 2013, it was taking me an hour. Dad started out operating the ram car. This machine carries coal to a feeder, which dumps it onto a conveyor belt and sends it outside. Eating in the number seven mine was slightly more pleasant than in Maxine or Nebo. For one, the ceiling was closer to six or seven feet tall. Dad's lunches consisted mostly of sandwiches. I brought bologna and cheese most of the time. Sometimes banana sandwiches, you know, but mainly bologna and cheese or ham and cheese, you know, something like that. Just kind of swap it around. Then, in the 90s, the miners finally figured out a trick that changed the kinds of food they could bring to work. It involved the mine's power center. Think of it like an enormous underground generator. When all the machinery and the lights were running, the power center would get hot. We just learned, you know, to bring Tupperware bowls and, and put on top of that power center, like if you had spaghetti or if you had soup or, you know, whatever you had, and chili, whatever, and you would cover it up with a lid, and by the time you got to eat lunch at 3.30 or 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock in the morning, then your food was usually pretty warm. Dad still doesn't know what took him so long to come up with this idea. His mama cooked for him once a week. 
He preferred her cooking to his wife's. Corned beef hash with boiled cabbage, vegetable soup, big lima beans with ground beef, pork chops, even hamburger patties, and always a slice or two of cornbread. Mm, I don't, it was just like, you know, homemade stuff. It wasn't out of a can, you know. Eventually, regulations changed, and a microwave was allowed down in number seven, making it easier for the miners to enjoy a hot meal. An Alabama coal mine was a dangerous and unpredictable place to work. Dad saw 40 fires break out during his career, an average of at least one a year. He lost half a finger in an accident. Eating home-cooked meals in such a volatile place brought him and the other miners comfort and familiarity. It helped them get through long, grueling shifts. But over the years, as fast food culture grew in mainstream America and the South, it moved underground too. Dad watched a generation of miners retire, men who, like him, brought home-cooked meals. And he noticed changes in the food these younger workers carried underground. They'd just buy them some potato chips and crackers and buy them a sausage or cookies or something and throw it in a, in a grocery bag. Well, it was just a different generation. Some coal miners have long eaten processed foods, though. You know the moon pie? Two round graham cracker cookies stuffed with marshmallow filling and dipped into a flavored icing? According to the Chattanooga Bakery, the moon pie was created in 1917 when a Kentucky coal miner asked for a snack as big as the moon, framing the yellow orb with his hands so the traveling salesman knew exactly how big he meant. Even Dad would sometimes bring a nutty bar or an oatmeal cream pie in his lunchbox. Still, he and other veteran miners gave out nicknames poking fun at those who carried store-bought food in plastic bags. One guy became Food World, another guy Subway. Food was used to create a pecking order. The miners all made good money, but not all of them had a mama or a wife to stay home and cook for them, or the know-how to cook for themselves. And besides, doling out nicknames like these was mild compared to the hazing when Dad started working in the number 7 mine. His first year... Some veteran miners told him it was tradition to bring a cake on your birthday. They just jumped up and lit in on me and said, you know, if you don't bring a birthday cake, we're going to grease you. So his wife, my mama, baked two yellow cakes, then whipped up some homemade chocolate icing. She was ready to spread it on when Dad stopped her. He had a box of X-Lax in his hand. You know, the stuff that makes you, let's say, regular. She asked what on earth he was doing with that. And I said, don't matter, don't worry about what I'm doing. I'm, I'm going to teach some people a lesson. He had on hand not one box, but two. I said, what the heck? So I just went back over and got the other box and dumped it in there too. The next day, he carried balloons, party hats, noisemakers, and both cakes down into the mine. And I said, now here's y'all's birthday cake. So they, they, they loaded in on it. I mean, they, they went wild on it. Of the 11-man crew, only four showed up for work that next day. I worked there 34 more years after that, and they never asked me to bring another birthday cake after that time. After a stint on the ram car, Dad operated the roof bolt machine, which secures the ceiling with steel rods. He spent more than 20 years doing this. Then he moved to the long wall, which is a machine that shears coal from the wall face. Beauty might not be a word you'd imagine being used to describe anything in a coal mine, but there were moments of it among all that dust and darkness. After the coal had been cut away, Dad would sometimes see fossils exposed in the rock, 
the remains of ferns, leaves from ancient trees. He became a collector, carrying smaller ones home in his lunchbox. These fossils are strewn around my parents' house and flower beds and on the back porch where Dad still sits and smokes. He gave a piece of a fossilized tree to my girlfriend when she first visited Alabama. A good sign, I knew. You just like take a hammer, you know, maybe and peck at them or whatever. Sometimes they broke, sometimes they fell on their own, and you know, you just you got lucky. He'll never forget one sighting in 2004. The ceiling had partially collapsed on the long wall, and the crew needed to drill the machine free. In doing so, they discovered a vast chamber nearly 2,000 feet underground. They looked up to see how high it went. And you couldn't see nothing but forest. It was just like a forest. Full trees laying lapped over the top of each other, like it had come a tornado or something, you know. But they were petrified. And I, I imagine some of them were probably 40 foot long or longer. But all they could do was look. As the long wall moved, the ceiling collapsed behind it, burying the entrance to that enormous chamber of petrified trees. We got to see it as something, you know, not many people ever see and ever or ever will see again. His last position at number seven mine was in an underground office operating the hoist, which carries coal to the surface. You know, that, that was the easiest job I ever had, you know. He brought the same lunches in the same lunchbox. It was just a little more enjoyable to eat while sitting upright in a comfortable chair. Dad was 61 years old when he transferred to this position. After more than 30 years working in the coal mines, he was, all in all, in good health. My sister had started college down the road in Tuscaloosa. Dad planned to work until she graduated, maybe longer now that he wasn't on his feet all night long. Then, in 2015, a rumor that had been going around for a couple years suddenly became reality. Walter Energy filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in July and has laid off hundreds of employees since. Coming up. What happens when coal miners are forced to hang up their lunchboxes? That's ahead. But first, there is that donor music. In many Southern families, cast iron cookware is a legacy passed from father or mother to son or daughter. For 120 years, the folks at Lodge Manufacturing in South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, have honored that loyalty by investing and reinvesting in the region. Right now, Lodge Manufacturing is cooking up the largest expansion in its history. It was founded all the way back in 1896. And now, Lodge is the last U.S. manufacturer of cast iron cookware. Every day, a new batch of skillets, Dutch ovens, griddles, and more rolls off the line and makes its way to a store or customer. Lodge is already the single largest employer in Marion County, Alabama. They're planning to open this brand new foundry by early 2018, which will employ 400 more folks. Now that's a legacy to be proud of. And now back to Caleb Johnson. The Alabama coal industry first began to decline during the stock market crash in 1929. Over the years, competition from other fuel sources drove down prices even more. Whole towns built on mining just disappeared. Dr. Jim Day, remember him, the professor from the University of Montevallo? He calls coal Alabama's hidden history. It often takes some poking around to understand how important the industry has been to the state. By the mid-1950s, many of those slopes that had been opened in the 20s and the 30s uh, were obsolete. Much of the coal that was easy to get was depleted. Uh, the mines had been mined out, as they say, and to go any deeper would have just been too expensive. 
Many of those uh, mines closed and uh, went elsewhere. One company that stayed was Walter Energy, which owned Jim Walter Resources, where my dad worked. For the last 15 or 20 years, the company mined metallurgical coal, which has a higher carbon content than thermal coal. Met coal burns hotter and is primarily used in steel production. Much of the coal my dad mined in central Alabama was shipped to China. Then, in 2015, China's coal consumption fell off for the first time in more than a decade. In mid-July that same year, Walter Energy filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection with $5 billion in debts. Hundreds of miners were laid off that summer, and hundreds more in the months that followed. But nothing changed immediately for my dad. He'd worked there longer than 95% of the other miners. That meant number seven would have to completely shut down before he was laid off. This didn't seem likely. The Blue Creek seam could be mined for many, many more years without being tapped out. So Dad continued his evening ritual, fixing his lunch, making that four-hour round-trip commute to the mine, and a long descent into its depths. For months, my family, like many others, worried what would happen next. When Walter Energy filed for bankruptcy, it ended its labor agreement with the United Mine Workers of America. What would happen to the miners' health insurance, to their retirement packages in the meantime, and when a new company finally took over? Dad wasn't hopeful, but he waited to find out what the new agreement would look like before making a final decision on his future. He got an answer one morning in the dead of winter. The company and the union had agreed to an initial new labor deal. Came home and then I got some phone calls the next day saying they were voting on the new contract and telling all the cuts and all that was being done, and so I said, I, I, I can't live with all those cuts. He blames the union. Its leadership, he says, didn't hold the company accountable. And the company, he says... Most all the us older miners knew that they didn't care anything about you because we'd done seen how they did their own people, their company people. So we knew they sure didn't care anything about the union, the working man. When he filed his paperwork, saying he'd rather retire than stay on with the cuts in pay and benefits... The company offered him a chance to walk through the mine one last time, for old time's sake. I just told him I didn't even want to do that, you know, I, I was through with it. After all those years, I wondered how could he not? Did he not feel nostalgic? Did he not want to snuff out any lingering doubt or future regret? Dad framed it as being a more practical matter than that. I just didn't want to have to drive all the way back down there, you know, to go through that. I just didn't, didn't want to, you know. On February 19th, 2016, he went to get his boots and belt and hard hat from his locker. His lunchbox was already at home. He saw a few co-workers that day. I asked what they talked about. Nothing, he said. Small talk. They told him good luck. Until I started writing this story, I'd never ask my dad if he thought of himself as a coal miner, or if he was proud of the work he did. Coal miners, most people believe the coal dust get in their lungs, you know, and cause black lungs and all. But when you ran coal, that coal dust got in your blood. It's what you wanted to do. Like if the day shift ran 100 foot, you wanted to run 105 foot. And, and if the evening shift ran 110 foot, you wanted to run 115 foot. It got in your blood. It was like a, like a four quarters of a football game. 
whoever did best, you know, like they won that day is, is what it was like between each other. So the, so the coal dust, we always said, didn't only get in your lungs, running coal got in your blood too, you know, because it's something you wanted to do and loved to do. In my early 20s, I got my first tattoo. I was just about to finish college, and I remember coming home afterward and holding out my right arm for Dad to see. A tunnel, a hammer and a chisel across its entrance, and above that, a banner reading Blue Creek, the seam of coal he mined, and the number seven. Dad did little more than grunt and take a sip of Dr. Pepper. But later that night, he told his co-workers about my tattoo. If I was 30 years younger, he said to me the next day, I might give me one like that. I got this tattoo to honor my dad, and in doing so, I wound up honoring Cole, the mining and burning of which allowed my dad to help pay for my college education. It was there at college in Tuscaloosa, just a 15-minute drive from the number seven mine, where I began questioning our country's undying dedication to fossil fuels. I was introduced to liberal politics that just did not exist in my small conservative community. To my dad's disappointment, I voted for Obama, twice. When I talk to my dad about Cole now, I hear anger in his voice. This anger, I think, is symptomatic of what a recent study by Princeton economists calls an epidemic of despair among middle-aged, uneducated white Americans. I fear this despair will only grow as more and more workers, like my dad, are left behind by a changing economy and culture. I'm not exactly against this kind of change. From my remove of college-educated comfort, I can see how easy it might be to applaud another nail driven into Cole's coffin. But for my family, it's more complicated than that. I've tried to ask my dad how it feels to be a man forced to confront such unwieldy forces as globalization. He just doesn't think in those terms. Same as he never thought about the toll mining took on his body. No, I never, I never thought about that. I was thinking about raising my family, you know. It was a good job, you know, a good paying job. So that's, that's all I, that's the only way I looked at it, you know. But that isn't the entire truth. There's still coal in his blood. This unexpected retirement has been hard on him. I ask what he misses most about the mine. Having a, a place to go every day, you know. And every night, an evening ritual, carrying a lunchbox filled with a home-cooked meal, the community of men he spent more hours with each week than he did with his own family. Now, all this unfilled time. I never imagined Dad would retire. He's still deciding what this new role looks like for him. Well, I work in my yard. You know, around here there's always sticks and limbs to pick up. and. I got me a new weed eater, so I've been weed eating some and working in my garden some and piddling on my truck some. Just and, and then, you know, I listen to a lot of sports talk shows too, you know, sitting on the back porch. It's not nothing like I expected. It's real boring. I, I really don't enjoy it at all, you know. He visits his mama a few times each week. She's a cancer survivor and can't see well anymore. She doesn't cook as often as she used to. But on Saturdays, she still wakes up early and fixes a big meal. He eats and visits, then brings home the leftovers in Tupperware containers and heats them up throughout the week in a microwave. He eats now in front of the television or on the back porch while the dogs beg for scraps. 
His lunchbox sits in the garage alongside his hard hat and light. One day they'll belong to me, he says, a worker's tools becoming a writer's keepsakes. Last time I was home, I asked him to take out his lunchbox. It looks better suited to carrying wrenches than sandwiches or soup. It's got stickers, naturally. You know me, I've got Alabama Crimson Tide stickers all over mine. And then regular coal mine stickers, too. We collected stickers over the years, coal mine stickers. You know, you put on your hard hat. I asked what was inside. There's nothing on the inside now. I took everything out. But Dad can still tell you the things he used to carry. I always kept cherry skull, uh, ibuprofen, uh, aura gel, uh, maybe a pair of uh, fingernail clippers, and then the rest of it was food, you know. Each night, he carried a little something extra, too. A little extra food, maybe a can of any sausage and crackers or something, just in case you, you, there's always, you always had the possibility of getting trapped in the mines. I never realized the purpose of these snacks he'd sometimes offer me when he got home in the morning. The leftovers in his lunchbox. I never really imagined anything bad could happen to Dad down there in the mine. He didn't make a big deal about what he did every night. But he always knew the reality of it. It was a possibility, so, you know, if you worked in the mine for years, you you knew to carry a little extra just in case, you know. Caleb Johnson is an Alabama native. He currently lives in Philadelphia, where he's finishing work on a novel and teaching at a charter school. Thanks to the Alabama Folklife Association and the Sloss Furnaces National Historic Landmark for their help finding a song we used in this piece, Got a Man in the Bama Mine by Merlene Johnson. It's from a collection, if you want to find it, called Spirit of Steel, Music of the Mines, Railroads, and Mills of the Birmingham District. In addition to that, we had music from Blue Dot Sessions, Tate Peterson, Michael Hurst, Dr. Turtle, and Big Bill Lister's Gimme an RC Cola and a Moon Pie. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Donor music is by Jazar. Thank yous, as always, to Gravy's managing editor, Sarah Camp Milam, and to our intern, Tyler Pratt. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... As the dog days of summer give way to the first day of school, you can fill your backpack with readings from The South in Food, a seminar from Dr. Katerina Pasadomo. It explores Southern culture and identity through the lens of foodways. Visit southernfoodways.org to dig deep into books, essays, and yes, an episode or two of this podcast for an exploration of authenticity, social justice, and much, much more. While you're online, take a moment to become an SFA member. Membership dollars support all the SFA's work, including our oral history projects and this podcast. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, early Chinese immigrants to Louisiana. They discovered that they could go out into the wetlands and build a platform and basically be isolated. Out of sight, out of mind. And the dried shrimp they ended up producing. That's next time. You are listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs>